Listeners, my name is Rob, and I am here virtually alongside my usual co-host Noah. Hello. And Emily. Hi. The regular cast of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. And today, I'm very pleased to be welcoming our special guest and longtime friend of the podcast, Jessica Noviello. Hello, everybody. Yeah, so astute listeners will know this is the first time that we've ever had a guest at a non-live episode. Um, also the first time we've ever had a guest in a remote episode. Uh, so a lot of firsts today. Um, no pressure. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm so honored. Are you kidding me? Jess, you've actually been mentioned in our episodes uh, dating back to... No, when, was that like number five? One of our first five Yeah, episodes? I think it was number... I think it was multiple times. There was uh, number two with Rise and Shine. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I got in touch with Jessica to ask oh, a lot wow, of questions yeah. about like geology. Uh, and she told me that to like really answer the question, I would have to understand fourth order differential equations, but she'd try her best. Um, <laughs> and I so I was that. like, okay, well, <laughs> explain it like explain it like I don't know any order differential equations. <laughs> um, and then there was another time I think we talked to you about uh, was it um, it was icy chaos or something or uh, on Europa. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so we, you were a, you were a very helpful contributor for some of our cool science facts that were a little out of our league, especially when it came to ice. <laughs> well, I'm always happy to help the podcast. You guys are awesome. And Jess, can I ask, like, what is it that that draws us to you about icy space things? Is there is there any reason that Noah has chosen you as his go to person, or, or can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I might just be the only person he knows who studies space ice, but uh, I I want to. I think I'm a good person to know, even if I'm the only one. Um, so I finished up my PhD in a field called planetary geology last June. So this is June 2019. And I studied Europa, its small scale geology features like chaos, which we've talked about. And listeners, you can go back to that podcast and listen about that. Um, yeah, so I finished up my PhD last June and I studied the geology of Europa and I spent literal years doing nothing but studying Europa's geology. So I definitely know a thing or two about it. But uh, what's funny is that I did not even know planetary science was a thing, a scientific field, until college. So it was just by accident that I kind of stumbled into it. And I'm really happy that I did, don't get me wrong. Um, but what's funny is that I went into grad school expecting to study asteroids because um, most people who know me no, I love dinosaurs. Their number one favorite scientific topic, sorry Europa, but uh, an <laughs> asteroid killed the dinosaurs. So I was like, whoa, that thing is more powerful than a dinosaur. I'm going to study those. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that project, <laughs> I ended up switching projects and now and then I did Europa and now I kind of do asteroids, Europa, exoplanets and a bunch of other things too. SciComm being one of them. So mm. um, I'm kind of all over the place in terms of my research. And uh, the one connecting thread that I can think of is water. 
you know, how water has affected all of these bodies, how water is on some of these bodies, whether it's on the surface like Europa's ice shell or locked up in a mineral like on certain asteroids. So I know water. <laughs> well, that's good. That's nice. That's that <laughs> is very lucky because this is an episode that is all about what, Rob? Oh, it's going to be all about water. Um, and I actually, I just want to, I want to <laughs> jump in. What with a one... stroke of luck! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is going to be an episode that is just dripping with water facts, uh, water references, hydro dynamic conversations. Uh, <laughs> but I, actually, and I, even if it's a soundbite, we throw away. I just wanted to ask Jess in a in a primordial game of rock paper scissors that would be dinosaurs, asteroids, water. Where in which I presume asteroid beats dinosaur, water beats asteroid. <laughs> Do you think dinosaurs beat water to complete that circle, or no? Water beats everything. Okay. Eventually. Oh. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I think water is you know effectively rolling a a natural d twenty during a game of Dungeons and Dragons. Like it is it is bad news if you are a rock or a dinosaur who cannot swim. Or if you're especially pruny. Or especially pruny. I can speak. Sorry, I haven't had that much scotch yet. (laughs) The the more you have, the better it gets. (laughs) Uh, And and while Jessica chugs scotch. That's wonderful. Um, Because while we're distancing in remote locations, we're happy to bring you an episode all about water. So each of Noah, M, and Jess are going to bring you one fascinating fluid fact, just sopping with science. And I'll finish things up with a pub-style trivia quiz, loosely inspired by the theme. Uh, and so, if we have nothing left to add, uh, or a preamble in this episode, let's get started with Noah. Thanks, Rob. This week I learned that Nobel Prize-winning physicist Niels Bohr stored the heavy water he needed for his atomic research in a beer bottle in order to hide it from the nazis so uh what brand of beer i guess is the big question uh well it was heavy water (laughs) so it wasn't it wasn't beer although it maybe we'll come back to that um so basically i mean niels bohr is uh physicist um probably most well known uh for his sort of what they call a model of the atom which um basically had been developed at that time it had gone from something that i think jj thompson uh came up with was this idea of the quote-unquote plum pudding model where basically i think he he's thought of it as like a little positive like thing in the middle and the electrons were like the raisins and the plum pudding it was a weird analogy <laughs> but you know that's what you have to do in order to like get pushed through those kind of weird analogies to get to true scientific understanding and there was another one i think this was the i think this was rutherford um and that sort of got a step closer uh and then uh, our friend niels bohr uh advanced on that and basically his idea was the this this concept of electrons being in these different energy states so this idea that they could be in these different energy states was a unification of this the previous atom model with a lot of the sort of quantum uh research that was coming out at the time and so he is Danish. He um, was also the uh, son of a Jewish mother and also a, a, 
uh, a, a non-Jewish father whose na- first name actually was Christian, um, which is which is interesting. <laughs> um, and he, you know, did his master's and his and his PhD, and then went to do research. Uh, and eventually, as I said, was was talking about this this particular model of the atom. Um, he published in three papers um, that are called the that t- collectively were called the trilogy. Uh, which was kind of an awesome way to like refer to like three papers, which like had this big, crazy, groundbreaking theory. Um, Ugh, I'm jealous. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I have to know: Did he call it the trilogy? Or did I, other I don't know. It, it was, so it's that really referred... changes my perception. Yeah, of this. It's just referred to as the trilogy. But I would love to have three papers. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, I'm working my ass off. I'm still almost to that. Um, but yeah, so he was he was doing really well. Um, and he began to be more well-known. Um, of course, he won a Nobel Prize. He was an eminent physicist uh, at this time when a lot of other really dark stuff was about to happen in the world. Um, and the fact that he was a nuclear physicist, essentially, um, or at least an atomic physicist, um, made him a central figure in a drama that played out. And that was basically the aspirations of both the Axis, particularly Germany, and the U.S. and the U.K. trying to develop nuclear weapons. Um, So in 1933, after the Nazis came to power in Germany, um, a lot of German scientists who opposed the Nazi regime fled to Denmark, and Bohr was one of the people like helping them escape, basically. And quite a lot of these people, these included Edward Teller, uh, James Frank, Otto Frisch, a lot of them went on to work for the Manhattan Project, as a lot of the physicists of that time did. Um, so in April 1940, the Nazis actually invaded Denmark and occupied it. Uh, and there was like a pretty high profile meeting now in sort of the, the history of, of the nuclear programs where um, Heisenberg, who is the head of the German nuclear program, um, and I think was sort of a, a maybe even that Bohr had been his mentor or something. Are you sure about that? <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> well, they. I read in all these articles. That's My great. I read in all these so. articles that they went on this like long stroll and in, in, in some park in Copenhagen and had a conversation. Um, but I couldn't figure out where this park was and when the conversation happened at the same time. I could only get one of those pieces of information. Uh, there it <laughs> um, is. <laughs> I was I was completely on board with you not knowing the time or the place, and then I realized it was a joke, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing. I was a physics major. Uh, oh no! Well, I'm, I'm just I believe well, you. Well, so the thing much. is that that is the extent that I understand about Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I am in fact <laughs> uncertain about everything else in quantum mechanics, um, so we'll have to rely on you uh, for that. So is everything um, else. <laughs> but so there was a situation where it, it is it, nobody knows exactly what happened. Um, some documents have like surfaced recently um, about maybe like letters that were sent after the fact. People are trying to piece together what Heisenberg and Bohr actually talked about. But in general, the the, the idea is that Heisenberg was trying to recruit Bohr or like at least like get some information out of him to try to figure out how they could advance the, the German nuclear program. But it became clear after that meeting uh, that Niels Bohr was not safe anymore um and he then had to be in this like crazy adventure he had to be like extracted uh from denmark by like you know special forces with the danish uh resistance fighters and stuff and i'll tell you that story in just a minute but first i want to tell you how that would not have been niels Bohr's first like foray into espionage like activities um so he had a little primer in this so one particular story i mean obviously when he was helping all these scientists escape. But one particular story I think really um, paints a good picture of what it was like uh, to be scientists who were trying to like 
pull one over on the Nazis. Um, so th this particular story is about Max von Lau and James Frank, uh, who are both German, um, and they won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1914 and 1925, respectively. Uh, so von Lau openly opposed the Nazis, and Frank was Jewish, so they had they were clearly in danger. And the Nobel Prize, you know, as as everyone knows, is basically this big gold medal with your name on it, um, and so both men uh, went in their escaping Germany through Copenhagen, left their medals with uh, Niels Bohr for safekeeping. But then the Nazis occupied Denmark, and basically there was this concern that uh, the Nazis would then find the gold. And, you know, besides sentimental value, you don't want Nazis to have gold. You know, it's, it's just a general thing you should try to keep away from isn't, them. Isn't that an Indiana Jones plot, <laughs> yeah. plot point? I was say, it's, like a, it's, it's yeah. an entire subplot. Actually, no, it's a main plot. Uh, wait, was Niels Bohr Indiana Jones? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, fights Nazis. Whoa. That's Steals it. Steals their gold. <laughs> Steals wow. their so well, he got no, protects PhDs. gold from did, them. Did he hate snakes? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> that's the deciding factor Ooh, is i don't know I, yeah yeah here, here's what i got was there's the the hiss orbital well <laughs> well you know the person he didn't like in his field was hissenberg <laughs> so it's oh perfect <laughs> so okay we've established there niels bohr is indiana jones <laughs> hate snakes have you ever seen them in cool. the same place yes. at the same time <laughs> no <laughs> I mean, they would have been contemporaries, which is really fun. I kind of want to say, oh, man. Okay, so they did Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was horrible, and I don't want another Indiana Jones movie. But incorporating something with Niels Bohr escaping Denmark, man, that would have been a, a that is yeah. a missed opportunity. Maybe if they did it as like a buddy comedy of like but him it, and Indiana. But it turns out like was, in the end that it's like Fight yeah, Club and they're the same person. Work. <laughs> <laughs> and then Heisenberg's like, ha. <laughs> Niels Bohr isn't here right now. Niels Bohr went away. Niels Bohr's gone. <laughs> We've put Niels Bohr inside of a sealed casket with a vial of poison. Is he alive or dead? <laughs> or when you open it, you don't know whether Niels Bohr is still Niels Bohr or is now Indiana Jones. Well, if it was Indiana Jones, wouldn't he have escaped? Oh, so you don't point. even know. Well, if that's he's... you would think it was. Is, that's yeah. Or is that Houdini? Maybe. Uh, don't don't. Add, no, we don't wait. need to be more complicated. <laughs> Wait, what? This is already insalvageable. <laughs> Houdini might have been dead by this time. Or was I think he? he was, yeah. Mm. Or was he? Punched in the stomach by a Nazi snake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but just going back to an, a different completely true definitely happened story. Um, uh, so uh, Max von Lau and James Frank escaping, they left their gold medals from the Nobel Prize with Bohr, right? And so... Bohr was like, how do I keep them from the Nazis after they occupied Denmark? So his first idea was to bury them, but he was like, no, the Germans are just going to dig up and find them. That's what they do. They dig up precious metals from other people, <laughs> like just like Indiana Jones stops them. Anyway, um, and, but there was actually a Hungarian chemist who worked with him, uh, whose name I will not attempt to pronounce in full, <laughs> but his, his last name is, I think, Dehevzi. So we're going to leave it at that. He also worked at the Bohr Institute, and he realized that he could actually dissolve the gold in a solvent. Um, and so it turns out that gold is actually quite difficult to dissolve, but there is one substance that was known that it could do it, and it's it's called aqua regia, which I think is um, like, what is it, uh, royal 
water, I uh, guess. Yeah. Um, and also part of our water fact, which is one of the reasons I included this, um, and that that can do it. And that's basically like hydrochloric acid and uh, what um, what is it like nitric. Oh my nitric god, acid, I just looked it up. Yeah. <laughs> nitric acid, yeah. Hydrochloric <laughs> acid and nitric acid. Uh, and like a 3 to 1 or 4 to 1 ratio. Um, and it's capable of doing it. So uh, basically they dissolve the gold metals in like these two different beakers um, into this aqua regia. And then the Nazis did actually get there and search the entire institute. But they ignored this like beaker of like this orange tinted liquid that was literally full of liquid gold. Um <laughs> <laughs> and what was great is that after, you know, eventually, as I'm going to tell you the story, Bohr did flee uh, Denmark and Hebsey left for Sweden. But he returned to Denmark after the war and the beaker was still there, undisturbed, intact. And they actually managed to, like, extract all the gold, send all that gold back to the Nobel Foundation. And the Nobels uh, recast new metals using the original gold and gave them back to the Nobel Prize winners who had to flee Germany, which is a very oh, cool, so cool result. Yeah. Wow. But... As I've mentioned now a couple times, Niels Bohr had to flee himself, right? So Niels Bohr was basically always going to be in danger from the Nazis. One of the reasons was because, obviously, he was Jewish or part Jewish. Another reason was of his incredible value as, like, an atomic scientist when they were, you know, really interested in getting all the knowledge they could about that uh, in order to develop a nuclear weapon. Um, and one of the things that was, in addition to just, like, the, the brain power they needed to do those kind of things was the actual materials that were necessary in the refinement of say like plutonium from uranium 238 and one thing that's really important for that process um there are a couple different ways you can go but the nazis choose chose to use something called heavy water and heavy water is basically uh you know you've got instead of just regular hydrogen atoms in your h2o which would be a hydrogen atom attached to an oxygen that oxygen attached to another hydrogen atom right um the hydrogens on this basically water molecule um, also have a neutron. So a normal atom of hydrogen, it's just a proton and an electron orbiting it. This is a hydrogen atom for you know most intents and purposes, um, but it's basically twice as heavy and it has some subtly different uh, chemical properties. One of the things it's really good for is that it has the ability to slow down neutrons that are ejected whenever neutrons are ejected. You know how neutrons are. Um, and this is really important in basically making, uh, if you want to like, uh, slow the i guess it's important to slow neutrons down so that they can more efficiently interact with the nuclei of other atoms if you want to create a slightly larger atom like moving uranium 238 to plutonium which is slightly bigger um so it was really important um to try to get large quantities of this heavy water it was difficult to produce you basically had to isolate it from just water that was out in the world i think it's something like one per 20 million water molecules is a heavy water molecule um you can you can apparently you can, they have slightly different boiling temperatures so you can like distill them i guess but that requires a lot of energy to make the water boil so there are other mm -hmm. like chemical methods that you can use to isolate them but you needed big plants that would do this um and of course in addition to being useful for developing nuclear weapons it was also very useful for atomic research in general and someone like niels bohr who had the whole bohr institute dedicated to this particular thing and was a nobel prize winner and a leader in his field had some of it lying around and this of course 
was concerning because it was very, very valuable. He didn't want it to fall into the hands of the Nazis. Um, it was necessary uh, for the British Secret Service to extract him, literally, I mean, from from Denmark under the cover of night. Um, so basically, Niels Bohr was told to be at a, a particular like pier at the harbor in Copenhagen at a certain hour of the night, um, and they were going to... The idea was to try to like smuggle him out to Sweden. So basically he was like the Danish resistance for like the ones who kind of were like on the ground and they come, they like bang on his back door. They're like, it's time. It's time. He is like rushing out the door, uh, through his kitchen apparently. And he realizes that he has this, as I mentioned in the fact, he was taken to, in order to like protect this heavy water, he had taken to filling up like a beer bottle with this heavy water and storing it in his like refrigeration uh, device refrigerator, I guess, <laughs> um, in in a in a chilled, controlled environment, <laughs> he had uh, these these bunch of bottles of beer. I think the way it's described later, I think they were like growler sized, basically. Um, so it was like a big bottle, um, and he had a, a bunch of them. Most of them had beer in them, but one of them was just full of this like priceless heavy water. And that's, so as he's like Danish roulette, I think exactly, is what you call it. Exactly. <laughs> But as he's, like, escaping the house and the Danish resistance are, like, looking around with their guns are, like, covering the area, he was like, oh, wait, I have to bring this bottle. And so he runs out of the house carrying this big, giant, like, bottle of beer. And the Danish resistance fighters are just like, what are you doing? <laughs> you, you, like, went back for this big jug of beer. Are you crazy? They have beer in Sweden. Like, what are you worried about? It's small, bad. Yeah. She just runs by. Support um, a local brewery. <laughs> yeah. Well, his local brewery was Carlsberg, actually. Um, and another thing that was ah. interesting about beer in his house is that when he won the Nobel Prize, Carlsberg actually bought him a house next door Whoa. to the brewery and gave him a direct tap to their beer. No um, wow. I think it's probably a good moment in the middle of this nice. harrowing espionage story to say I'm actually drinking Carlsberg uh, premium Danish Pilsner right now. Um, Perhaps the finest lager in the world. Hashtag. Perhaps I, I think they say uh, oh. probably the best beer in the world. That's what it says here, and I, I think they're saying that like statistically significant mm. um, <laughs> probability. Uh, huh. Anyway, so that's that's pretty cool. So he could actually he was oh, probably man. filling that up with Carlsberg like straight from the Carlsberg tap on his wall. Um, <laughs> so there was no shortage of it. I guess maybe the, anyway they were very concerned <laughs> that this was his priority was to bring this beer because they didn't know what the heavy water was. Um, so he's like, they're like, whatever. So they're running through like the streets, you know, probably like, sh you know, shooting behind them, just like Indiana Jones would. Um, and it actually, apparently the, like, uh, the Nazis did actually like raid the house. I think like very soon after that. So they were like hot on their heels. Um, and they got to the boat, they got out and they managed to like get him to Sweden. Um, and, it was the first thing he did was to go to the Nobel Institute uh, to actually meet with Dr. Lisa Meitner. Basically, he hand uh, the story goes in the book Burn After Reading the Espionage History of World War II. Um, it says that he handed her the bottle to basically like keep safe at the Nobel Institute and maybe she could use. Um, and then <laughs> Dr. Meitner basically like examined it and was like, <laughs> it says she exclaimed in a voice of anguish that it was real beer. Uh, that it wasn't the heavy water oh. bottle. He had accidentally grabbed just one of the other identical beer bottles that had beer in it. So the heavy water was still mm. in the house, still camouflaged as beer, 
Um, and the story goes basically that uh, for the, it's also from this book. For the next 24 hours, that confounded bottle became the most important target for the Allied Secret Services. A team of the Danish underground sneaked into the abandoned Boar house, reached the icebox without incident, took the important bottle, and smuggled it safely to Boar in Sweden. So they never did understand why they had to go to so much trouble just to get a bottle of Danish beer for a bibulous old professor, <laughs> which is a great thing. Anyway, Niels Bohr was a crazy spy scientist badass who almost died a million times, um, but nonetheless uh, gave us a very cool model of the atom and a great story about heavy water. And was possibly <laughs> Indiana Jones. And all, no, and was 100% Definitely. Indiana Jones. Well, there you within, have it. <laughs> within the error bars. <laughs> So this week I learned that last summer, a group of scientists at Columbia published that they found a huge reservoir of fresh water in probably the last place you'd think to look for one, under the freaking ocean. So this fact comes from a paper that was published uh, in June of 2019 in the journal Scientific Reports, but the actual story of this discovery starts way before that back in 1976. So that was when the U.S. Geological Survey conducted the Atlantic Margin Coring Project, or AMCOR for short, to survey an area of the continental shelf along the northeastern coast of the U.S. And their idea was to collect core samples of the ocean um, by a method known as shallow drilling. And then by looking at these cores, they could determine the composition of shelf sediments, um, assess sort of like the geotechnical capacity of the shelf to support man-made structures, and look for resources in there like oil uh, or aquifers which are subterranean deposits of rock or sediment that can absorb and collect groundwater, basically like a big sponge under the ground. And to that last point, uh, the AMCOR survey and some subsequent drilling surveys did find evidence of aquifers with fresh water under the ocean. Um, and admittedly, we have seen in other places, there's evidence of like these submarine aquifers. Um, and they actually form either as pockets of glacial water that was buried by sea level rise after the last ice age, or mm -hmm. as like sinks for groundwater runoff from adjacent land or some combination of the two do you think that fresh water is just sitting there and all the salt water is coming in and they're like man i really hate what's happening to the neighborhood with all this salt water and like just really persnickety <laughs> old so it's ironic because so the, they're salty sorry sorry oh that was Typical. good sorry Typical i was so that was good. I went into a very geologist point of mind and I was like, oh man, in order to uh, prevent a density inversion because salt water would be more Ooh. dense than the fresh water. Yeah. So in order to prevent a density inversion where the salt water ends up on the bottom, obviously it must be the fresh water must be locked up in hydrated minerals. Wow. I mean, cool. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, but, but of course, this is where my brain goes because I'm... I love that your brain goes there and just keep commenting with like all of that. Is, is that like so cool. the <laughs> is that like the surface of Mars argument that like there's water that's locked up in mineral bonds that like you can't access but like um... uh, there are hydrated minerals on Mars. Okay, I promise I'll I'll talk Go for about it. this <laughs> no. later as well. Okay, because my whole thing was going to be like, well, let's talk about where water on Earth came from in the first place, mm. um, and where else in the solar system is it? It's and God's tears, the right? water that's on the... God's tears. That's the that's the story. That's I learned so with. many yeah. tears. He was just so disappointed in, in <laughs> you, in whoever. It, yes, whoever did you the know object that, is. Did you know that the ancient Egyptians believed that when the god Ra cried, when his tears hit the sand, it created a bee? 
Fax machine giving you all the facts. <laughs> I did not know that. That's pretty cool, though. Um, like what, what were we wait, doing? wait, like a honeybee? If you drank his tears, you could get buzzed. <laughs> I swear we were doing something. Was it Emily's fact? I, I can't remember. I I will say I have a question for you guys because okay. I was kind of pondering this like in researching this fact, like thinking about sort of these glacial waters that once like 15,000 to 20,000 years ago were in these majestic glaciers and that are now trapped underground in aquifers. Like I have to wonder, do they feel subterranean homesick blues? <laughs> <laughs> Long setup. I love it. The, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, no, totally worth that it. Home. I love it. <laughs> there we go. But anyway, so back to the actual story. Um, So since, as I mentioned before, uh, those kind of drilling surveys consist of just poking little holes and examining samples that are taken from distant locations under the ocean, all those prior surveys didn't really give us a way of knowing whether the aquifers they found were kind of like isolated and discrete and scattered along the eastern seaboard, or whether they were part of like a larger continuous reservoir that spanned hundreds or even thousands of miles. Um, And that is where study co-author, so the study that I'm talking about here, and Columbia geophysicist Carrie Key uh, comes in. I'm surprised that uh, that scientist's, you know, nominative determinism didn't turn him into a janitor if your name is Carrie Key. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I was going to say he was a key that... contributor, but that just... <laughs> that... <laughs> that works. That works. <laughs> well, he's a geophysicist. <laughs> oh, well. And he carries oh, the well. key to the secrets of the world. <laughs> there we go. I like that. that's a good like business card <laughs> slogan type thing. I like that. Um, but yeah, so he basically developed uh, or helped to develop a technology that involves electromagnetic imaging, um, and it was originally used for hydrocarbon exploration, which is like the fancy technical term for just looking for oil. Um, but later in this publication, he uses it for aquifer exploration instead. Um, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about that methodology because I think it's kind of cool, and I bet you guys will think so too. So uh, these so-called marine electromagnetic methods, or EM, uh, work kind of like a very sophisticated version of those handheld metal detectors used by beachcombing retirees, um, except that it scans the bottom of the ocean rather than a patch of sand in Florida somewhere, and it detects geological features rather than nickels, empty lighters, or if you're lucky, a bent fork. <laughs> but in the way that a metal detector uses electricity um, to emit a magnetic field and then detects changes to this field whenever it passes over a metal object, EM instruments, once they're submerged into the ocean, detect electromagnetic fields, um, and then they include a transmitter that puts out an artificial uh, pulse of electromagnetism and a receiver that also records like the resultant waves as they resonate and interact with their undersea environment. So by analyzing the way that these waves react to the ocean floor, um, we can then get gather clues about its composition and its layout. And as you might recall from high school physics, salt water is a better conductor of electricity than fresh water. So an area of fresh water can be detected by its higher resistance um, to these EM waves. So they pass through differently than they would um, in a saltwater medium. And the really important thing about this EM, this approach, is that unlike shallow drilling, it can survey and collect data over like a huge continuous swath of the continental shelf rather than just kind of like picking little bits and pieces here and there. So opting to take this less hole-based but arguably more 
holistic approach. <laughs> Uh, Carrie Key, his graduate student Chloe Gustafson, and uh, Rob Evans, a collaborator from Woods Hole, uh, embarked on an expedition from southern New Jersey all the way up to Martha's Vineyard, encompassing the sites where shallow drilling had previously detected possible aquifers. Mm. And after 10 days of sailing and collecting measurements and occasional hiccups, um, kind of hilariously in the paper, which, well, not hilariously, but just to me in a way that felt kind of like very, like, truthful um the authors write that they lost some data in martha's vineyard because their instruments got caught in buoys and fishing gear um after no, all they that... didn't they just went partying in martha's vineyard <laughs> hung out on the beach maybe <laughs> oh yeah we lost <laughs> the data had a clam bake and we're like yeah i'll get it back afterwards it's fine but after all of that partying or not they had gathered evidence of a single gigantic submarine aquifer that stretches from at least New Jersey to Massachusetts and out to 50 miles offshore, wow. Wow. with a total surface Ooh. area of roughly 15,000 square miles. Do we know, is it is it a particular <laughs> color? Is it a yellow submarine That's, aquifer? There we go. Uh. <laughs> I was like, where's the joke? It's coming. Where is it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, yes. So, that's massive and admittedly i don't know if this provides context because i also can't imagine the size of lakes but if it does give any context to anyone if you were to put this on uh like basically on land it would be like right between lake erie and lake michigan in size decent so decent she big (laughs) yeah i think that's great but it's not actually as porous (laughs) do you ever think about like what the like if eventually if we run out of like land-based or like above ground freshwater that like we'd have to go do like like uh like deep sea well drilling for freshwater so that is actually part of why this finding is so exciting because it creates an opportunity for that where like especially if it exists um in like places where water is already scarce or as you mentioned like terrestrial sources are being depleted um it creates an opportunity to actually source not like fresh or nearly fresh water from from this resource um and even though it's still salty like it's lower salinity still makes it a lot cheaper to filter than just plain oceanic salt water okay but like what would be the consequences of like a uh, uh, british petroleum like oil well leak version of that but for like fresh water in the ocean Ooh. what would happen like if Ooh. oh like if the fresh water escapes yeah but like like the, the whatever ocean. the wellhead or whatever happened to bp like in the gulf that just like breaks and then there's just like ridiculous amounts of like fresh water pouring into the salt water what would happen um well based on what jessica <laughs> yeah. said go for it i'm guessing it would rise but i think she'd know better <laughs> uh i definitely think it would rise and i think we also have to consider the effects of the ocean currents that are dominant in the mm. atlantic ocean of course you have the gulf stream that is taking water from the gulf of mexico and from the caribbean and pushing it up along the east coast right where all of the drilling experiments took place and then kind of shoving it out. That's not a word. Shoving it out. <laughs> into shoving. No, the... I know that. It's a science term. I... Yeah, shoving. Yeah, totally. Total Picture science it. term. Um, yeah, shoving it out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and, and even potentially mm-hmm. reaching areas like England. You know, it's kind of famous for its relatively moderate climate, despite the fact that it's pretty high in latitude. So a lot of that is because of the Gulf Stream. So, yeah, I think it would just, you know, go up and then kind of get shoved out into the Atlantic. And that's probably what would happen to most of it. It would totally throw off a lot of the oceanographic models 
that people have. Like, what? Why is this water suddenly so much less salty I mean, than it should be? Would you even but notice that? Where is it Would you even, like, from? notice the difference in, like, salinity? Uh, it depends on how often you sample salinity and from what places. But there are NASA satellites that <clears throat> monitor things like salinity, like wave height, like all... Uh, even different temperatures, because I would assume that the the temperature of the water in the aquifer is different from the temperature of the salt water around wow. it as well. So maybe you would notice some kind of temperature anomaly in it. I, I don't know. I guess this is all theoretical, but uh, we we could see, I guess. I would be... Mm. That would be really curious I, to I find out, I would love actually. for that to be, like, the plot of, like, a disaster <laughs> movie. Like, there's fresh water in the ocean! England's gonna be destroyed! <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds so quaint. I have to say, that's what makes it better. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's that's a problem. That's so cute. That's, just all these so all these big bloated uh, fish, just like washing ashore. You know, that would be a problem for a lot of the the ocean life that needs yeah. salinity. And if it yeah. suddenly had only fresh water, and it, I mean, maybe you could have some animals that could go down to where the salt water was, but not all of them could do that. I guess it depends on how much the volume was and how quickly it came out. Because I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a cool comparison, I think, because there's measurements of, because of glacial melt and runoff, um, there is a desalinization happening in the ocean. Um, And I forget what it is. The introduction of like, like maybe millions to hundreds of millions of gallons of water, um, which in like the hundred million trillion gallons of the ocean, like, don't make a huge effect but like they're um yeah locally, locally you get a much yeah. bigger difference and so mm-hmm. yeah um like i don't sure. know like that's a cool um i mean i don't do math anymore but that's probably a second order <laughs> equation that you could plug in there just <laughs> oh. sworn off it forever oh, I'm sure. so i'm gonna throw in a fun oceanography Ooh. fact because <gasps> yeah. i just think it's so cool um the unit that oceanographers use to describe the mass of water moving in a current like the Gulf Stream or maybe as output from something like a river, uh, that unit is actually called a sphere drum. Ooh, that sounds Norwegian. And it's a brief, it's, yeah. I just think it's one of the coolest names for a unit ever. Um, <laughs> well, how does that spell? A sphere drum. S-V-E-R-D-R-U-P. Cool. Yeah, it's abbreviated as S-V, and I just think it's yeah. so cool, because, um, oh gosh, my oceanography professor is going to uh, haunt me for well, this the, one. But you he... have one of those, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're already ahead of us. <laughs> this was a few years ago, but the combined output from all of the world's rivers into all of the world's oceans is either 14 or 19 sphere drops. It's somewhere in that teen kind mm. of range. And then the amount of water that moves in the Gulf Stream is something on the order of like hundreds of sphere drops. Wow. To give you an idea of just how much water is moving in one of the major currents wow. on Earth. And that kind of fact just blows my mind. Yeah. So, sorry, no joke, but cool <laughs> no fact. No need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with our with our podcast, it, it has it to be one That's or the cool. other. <laughs> I will I will strive to yeah. do both. I'd, I'd like to see other things nice. measured in sphere drops um, that shouldn't be, like the I can I can bring this up here very confidently. <laughs> We're all familiar with the Boston molasses disaster. Oh yes, 
Uh, yes. In 1919. Where else in the world do you get four people who are just casually like, yeah. oh, of course, yes. Um, I mean, I'm at least from Massachusetts. Yeah. I don't know what's up with you guys. But... Love molasses. It was, it was a tragedy. Pretty sure I like. <laughs> because so much molasses was wasted. Yeah. You monster. <laughs> do you think that's like, that's a microsphere drip? Probably of of fluid just right down. Maybe less. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, you know, it, it's it's been too much time since I took these classes, so I couldn't tell you like how many kilograms cubed or, or kilograms per meters cubed that is, and what the density is, or what the the volume is. But you know, I can look it up super quick. Who do you think uh, Sverdrup would have uh, wanted to be president? Would he feel the Bernoulli? <laughs> Okay, moving on. Hey, I am Navier stoked by all of these fluid dynamic references. That was really good. Oh, what? <laughs> so, do Sorry, you know man. what a nightmare Navier Stokes is? Yeah, all, all, the, all the partials. No. I hate it. Oh, gosh, it's a nightmare equation. That was good. Every now and then, that's what I'm here for. Well, it's too bad we're gonna have to cut all this out. <laughs> oh no! Uh, we, we, we don't have time, Emily. No keep room. going. Okay. <laughs> so the last thing I wanted to mention was just like so. I mean, the f- stories about this started coming out last summer, and I remember when I first saw it, I was just like thoroughly flabbergasted, even just from the headline alone. And it kind of stuck with me afterwards. Of like, I mean, there's all sorts of very cool science stuff going on, getting talked about every day. But I was kind of contemplating my reaction to this story in particular. And I think it stems from the fact that, like, there's something about sort of, like, our observable planet to me that I just, I think I'd kind of assume that we understood a lot of everything around us, at least, like, immediately around us. Like, oh, yeah, the ocean. We get the ocean. The mountains. We get the mountains. As opposed to, like, outer space, which is infinite and, like, at least to me, impossible to conceive of. But then in our next segment, Jessica is going to be, like, space. And I'm going to be, like... That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Very high expectations. Just, just, a pre- just, just a preview for everyone. Um, and in the same way, too, as a molecular biologist, I also kind of have a similar-ish view at that more minute level of things where it's like we have, you know, an understanding of it. But still, like, in the same way that we can't see it directly, I have more of, like, more of an idea. There's so much still that we don't know. Whereas, like, you go about the world and you assume that we know all of this stuff and there's not gigantic piles of water just lying under the ocean um but given that anyways that brought me to uh, a quote that i thought i could end on that was also appropriate to this fact to this theme to that idea which is don't go chasing waterfalls no wait, it's the wrong one um sorry it's oh, uh, <laughs> don't go chasing water flows don't go chasing aquifers except chasing <laughs> oh that's even better but the qu- only stick to spare drop units that nice <laughs> <laughs> So I guess uh, this decade, I learned (laughs) all about the water of the Earth and of Europa and asteroids, Pluto's moon Charon, exoplanets, you know, the water of the solar system. I mentioned on the beginning of this podcast that I spent years studying Europa. Uh, Europa is pretty famous not only in planetary science, but also in the general public because it has a, a global ocean underneath a 
an ice shell. And we're not exactly sure how thin or thick this ice shell is, but it's probably between about 5 and 25 kilometers. Uh, in miles, let's see, that's between like 3 and... 3.1. That's a 5k. Yeah, exactly. That's between like 3 and let's say 16 miles. If Yeah, basically judging from 5k distances. So going off of something that Emily, I believe you said uh, the aquifers and they might all be interrelated to each other and, and they might even be like connected mm -hmm. uh, at some level. Uh, in that same way, we're not 100% sure what the water looks like on Europa in terms of is it only contained within the ocean or are there little pockets within the ice shell? And if there are pockets within the ice shell, are they close enough to the surface that we could theoretically send a lander mission there and have it drill into the surface and actually sample the water directly. So super cool, obvious implications for potentially finding life outside of Earth. But I think the bigger question is, how did the water get there in the first place? And what else do we know about water in the solar system? Because it turns out this very familiar molecule that we all can rattle off the chemical formula for, you know, H2O, it's actually a profound player in how the solar system came to be. So, in the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, there was a baby sun. I always knew Jessica was God. In the beginning, there was water. I put it there. You're welcome. I guess I'm saying in the beginning of our solar system, there was a sun that burned a little bit bigger and a lot hotter than it does today. And it was surrounded by a cloud of gas and dust. And this cloud was not just a, a fluffy one in the sky. This was huge. This expanded all the way out to the edges of our solar system that we know today. And uh, the gas, as it rotated around the sun, uh, the gas and dust, uh, the gas actually moved a little faster than the dust. And it created these little pockets of what are called instabilities but basically it's it's where things got messed up you know we we brought up the navier stokes equation earlier so think of that going completely haywire and these little pockets I, formed and that's where planets came from can i ask real quick i actually don't yeah, know what same. that is i laughed along with everyone else <laughs> oh so navier stokes is a way to model the turbulences of a chaotic system something like fluids going through a pipe or along a river or like gas and dust orbiting a baby sun huh. and it. um it created or well not the equation itself but there were these little uh, physics basically created these little pockets of 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 calm and that's where planets were born and grew into the sizes that they are today and at the same time the sun is kind of calming down it's getting to where it is today in terms of size and temperature but we have this gradient almost of planets going from near the sun to way way distant to the sun like even beyond Pluto into the region that's known as the the Kuiper belt so there's a line almost that you can draw in early solar system formation. And you can say in front of this line, everything is too hot and no water, no ice can solidify or liquefy and uh, everything within this line is dry. And then everything outside of that line, it's cool enough, it's far away from the sun enough that you can form things like ice. And this line 
is actually called the snow line. Appropriate. So, yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> it's it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Geologists are maybe not the most creative people, but they're they're fun, you know. <laughs> so it the the snow line is kind of like the it's radiating outward from the sun. So everything within it is too hot and everything outside of it is too so cold. So is it just right? Or is cold enough? <laughs> cold enough. <laughs> yeah. I'd... So it's Ooh. it's kind of the opposite of Frozen where Elsa just freezes everything <laughs> around her. But then if you get far enough away from Elsa, the snow stops. Yes. Okay. First Elsa. Cool. But... Terms I can understand. Yeah. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess like Elsa lives beyond the snow line and everything within the snow line, that's the sun's domain i don't know i don't think there's a villain of sun i don't know maybe well, the heat miser ne- from that nemesis old... is yeah. our... oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> i'm mr heat miser yeah yes. yeah that yeah. guy great reference Ugh. oh that was that's such a great yeah. show anyway okay so you got like yeah so you got elsa and the snow miser chilling out in the outer solar system you got the heat miser over by the sun and then somewhere (laughs) in the middle is the snow line and inside a lot of these rocky planetesimals you know the name that we call baby planets uh they're forming within the snow line and then outside you get the more ice rich planetesimals so that's where we think comets would have formed and uh different meteorites that are more enriched in ice and water and then jupiter comes in literally comes in from like far away from where it formed and it comes into where Mars is and it just moves around and it shakes everything up. And so stuff from the outer solar system gets flung into the inner solar system. So blame Jupiter. Freaking Jupiter. Loves drama. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so now we have set the stage for Earth to receive its water and actually grow into the Earth that we know it to be today. Around 3.8 billion years ago, so this is a really, really long time ago, at this point we have uh, the Earth-Moon collision event happened, and so Earth has its moon, it's starting to calm down, and it's getting its water. And it might have been there earlier, but the latest, or sorry, the earliest we can track Earth's water is to about 3.8 billion years. So this is, this is quite old. This is reaching very far back into Earth's history. And... It's getting it from somewhere because, again, it formed within this snow line. So we think that all of the water that Earth had originally would have burned off. And it certainly would have burned off in the collision event because, as you can imagine, they're very high energy. There's a lot of heat. And that would have just burned off all of the water that or ice that might have been on Earth in the first place. So we finally have Earth calmed down to a point where it's accepting water. And the question is, where is it getting them from? Now, in the 90s, or actually, I would say, like, (laughs) as long as people have been looking at comets, uh, which might have even been, like, the 1600s since the the first telescopes were invented and people could actually see that, oh, it's a ball of ice and not just this streak across the sky. They were like, oh, yeah, of course, comets are made of ice. The Earth needed water. Therefore, the comets brought the water to Earth. You know, totally easy. Problem solved. Done. Uh, Except it wasn't so easy because we sent a bunch of missions to study the isotope compositions of comets and it didn't work. I mean, the comet that we looked at didn't have the same isotope ratio as Earth's oceans. So that was a big surprise. You know, we, we thought we had this wrapped up in a neat little bow and it turns out, nope, it's a lot more complicated than that. 
So we started looking for water from other sources. And one of these sources that we found, or and I say we as planetary science, not, not me personally, but uh, a lot of planetary scientists actually study meteorites, which are the bits and pieces from other planets and other destroyed worlds that have flown through space and through our atmosphere and been collected on the surface of Earth. So uh, there are different, there are many, many, many different types of meteorites, and I'm not anywhere close to an expert on, on most of them. But I can say that the one that we want to talk about the most is one called a carbonaceous chondrite. What's really cool about these carbonaceous chondrite asteroids is that they have water in them, but it's not liquid water pockets like something like Europa or Earth might have. Uh, they're locked up in these minerals, these clay-based minerals called phyllosilicates. And I promise that is the last like complicated, oh wait, no, it's the second to last complicated <laughs> word I'm gonna ask you. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but the, the, the last one is super cool. You'll like it. Uh, but yes, these phyllosilicates, um, uh, these phyllosilicates are just like graphite. They're sheets actually. And they just have little water molecules that are actually kind of trapped within their crystal lattice. So they're, they're locked in there. And there are multiple missions that are going to carbonaceous chondrite asteroids right now. There's the uh, Japanese mission, Hayabusa 2, which is going to asteroid Ryugu, and it's actually there right now. And then there's the NASA OSIRIS-REx mission, which is currently at an asteroid called Bennu. And we're looking at these asteroids specifically because we want to determine what is their composition and how much water do they have. Are carbonaceous chondrite-rich asteroids actually good at, uh, are they good sources of water in case we ever needed to do a long-term space mission? So these asteroids, they, they're formed in our solar system, but they have a, um, I guess, why is their composition so totally different than Earth? from like a mineral point of view? Well, we think it's because they formed outside of the snow line. So they must have formed in a different part of the solar system. And then they were thrown in when Jupiter decided to move around. So, and then they just got trapped in an orbit, whether it was around Earth as a near Earth asteroid or in the asteroid belt itself, you know, they, they stabilized somewhere and they've just been there ever since. So when we study asteroids, we're really looking at the history of the solar system from different places in the solar system and at different times. So it's a big puzzle and every asteroid is an additional little piece of it. That's why I think they're cool. Very cool. It's like forensic astronomy, like just <laughs> taking it all and putting it yes. back together. That's super. That, uh, man, I want to be that when I grow up. Can I, can I change? <laughs> can I change my mind? <laughs> it's like... Well, law, law I mean, and order of magnitude are like bum, bum. very cold case right. <laughs> very cold nice. frigid well yeah. anyway it turns out that we now wonder if asteroids could have been a source for earth's water aha but wait there's more because <laughs> because uh th this was an idea oh oh i'm so glad you're loving this okay <laughs> yes <laughs> There was an idea that uh, I guess it's been kicking around for a while, but in the past five or six years, it's really picked up a lot of momentum. And it's the idea that there is a lot of water actually trapped in minerals within Earth's mantle. So in, in the structure of the Earth, you have the crust, which is the part that we all live on. And then 
uh, right underneath it, we have the mantle and then the outer core, and then we have the inner core. So the layer just below the crust, the mantle, is where we think a lot of water might be, just kind of wrapped up in different in different minerals, kind of like how the molecules in the, the water molecules in the phyllosilicates are wrapped up in the carbonaceous chondrite asteroids. We think something similar might be happening with the minerals on mm. Earth. I can't really ask you to raise your hands, but I guess just <laughs> say yes if you've ever heard of the rock cycle. No. No. So when geologists talk about the rock cycle, it's the, well, it's a cyclical uh, chain of events where first a rock forms, say in something like a river environment, so it's a sedimentary rock, it's made out of sediments, and then it gets subducted through plate tectonics, so it's, it's, um, it's subjected to heat and intense pressure, and then it becomes a metamorphic rock. It has changed in terms of its structure and its appearance, and, and most often its characteristics as well. And then perhaps it, if, if it is really lucky, it then gets extruded out of a volcano as a volcanic or an igneous rock. And so uh, the idea is that a single rock or a single mineral or even a single molecule can go through all of these different phases and eventually the igneous rock gets worn down and it becomes deposited as a sedimentary rock again and the whole cycle just keeps going. Sometimes the rock cycle isn't so straightforward as sedimentary to metamorphic to igneous. Sometimes it takes some detours. And one of these times, actually, I'm bringing up my notes, is a specific process called serpentinization. Ooh. Ooh. Cool. Right. And that is the last complicated word I'm, I'm going to, to say on this podcast. So what happens in this process of serpentinization is that this igneous rock that existed beneath Earth's crust has gotten to the surface, but it doesn't quite make it out, and it actually gets buried again, and once again becomes a metamorphic rock. So instead of going out and coming back down, it's just kind of skipped the going out part, and, uh, you know, it's like a teenager whose parents caught them sneaking out, you know, that's... <laughs> I guess the best you go, analogy you go that back I can in think again of and then try to sneak out again. Eventually you do, because this is how we know about these rocks. So, you know, that teenager is successful at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, there's, uh, but what happens at some point is we have all of these igneous minerals that are, are specifically found within the igneous rocks, like peridotite, which um, if you're familiar with the gemstone mm. peridot, you know, that's, that's peridotite. And... Uh, when peridotite is exposed to seawater, it actually uh, changes its mineral structure into something, into a mineral called serpentinite. And you might have guessed that the process that does this is something called serpentinization. So we, we have all of these, and we think that uh, if we know of X amount of serpentinite and peridotite on the surface of Earth, you know, maybe it's not too much of a stretch to think that there's a lot more serpentinite in Earth's mantle where we can't reach because it's just too far down, too hot, too high pressure. You know, we would not survive and instruments that we have right now would not survive. So we think then that there are hydrated minerals. So these water rich minerals uh, locked up in the mantle and it potentially makes up a large part of Earth's interior and some Estimates even put it as much as 10 times the amount of water that we have in Earth's oceans is locked wow. up in the mantle. 
Whoa. Yeah, it's it's great actually that um, now we have all these ideas for for where water on Earth came from. You know, maybe it was actually holding on to it all the time. Maybe not as pure water, but as water that was locked up in minerals and has almost been locked away for 3.8 billion years or more. So, so that's what we have. Uh, Let's just say through a process we don't really need to elaborate on that. Like there was something that was like leaching the water out of these uh, minerals that are like deep in the earth. Let's just say all of a sudden they become, how do you say, would it be dehydrated? Would that be the word? Yes, actually. The minerals. How would would that affect the earth? Well, most of the rock cycle and most of plate tectonics actually while we're not 100% sure how it works we're pretty sure that it it functions as a result of density inversions in mm. earth's mantle so if you suddenly dehydrated all of these minerals then what you would end up with is like a layer of water on top of a layer of very dense rock and if it's stable like that it's not going to want to move so you might actually stop all plate tectonics Whoa. on Earth. You would not have volcanic eruptions except in hot spots like Hawaii. Uh, but yeah, it wouldn't. Continents would stop moving. New crust would stop forming. That would be terrible for life on Earth, actually, because so much of our of our uh, food chain actually depends on mm. new rock coming out with new minerals that then get broken down by seawater and eaten wow. up by the little. Oh, yeah phytoplankton so if we lose out on the minerals that phytozoans need to survive then we're going to kill the food chain well could i ask is it safe to say as like uh if you were an astrobiologist is um is plate tectonics a requirement for life because of nutrient cycling uh the way that like life would stop on earth is that like a requirement you look for on an exoplanet uh i think you know what? I think yes. I think I'm just going to come out and say yes. That if you want to have a world that can sustain life and not just have it, but sustain it for long periods of time, you need to have plate tectonics. And I have a couple of different friends who are specifically studying you know, whether or not an, an exoplanet or some exoplanets can have plate tectonics and, and what kind of signatures we would need to look for to determine you know, yes or no on a planet. That might be the hottest take wow. that Fax Machine has ever had. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, I really hope that doesn't come back we'll, in the we'll future just, to bite um, me in the butt. We'll just record a correction we'll see. a retraction. <laughs> yeah. People do it all the time. I'm not worried. All right. Well, then, I think I have said all that I can say right now about Earth's water and where it came from and how long it's been here, but it's definitely an interesting story, and it gets updated at least annually, so (laughs) definitely keep an eye on it. So all that remains for us to do today is our watery quiz. So I have eight questions for you uh, of different fluid capacity, uh, of which I hope you can... uh, (laughs) <laughs> splash around and find an answer Ew. yep sorry so <laughs> weirdly gross all, all right. right question number one according to the epa how many u.s households use well water as their primary so- source of water um and for your answer i just want you to be in the correct order of magnitude i do know a lot of people in arizona especially those that don't live in the city they actually do pump their own well water so that's pretty I would think cool. 
actually. I don't think really question. anywhere that's like not near a lake or like a major reservoir. Even a reservoir, I'm sure they could like pump it from somewhere and store it in a reservoir. Um, so I would bet tens of millions. I'm pretty comfortable saying on the order of tens of millions, though. You know, people in like very rural yeah. Wyoming or Arizona or yeah. a lot of these western states would pull specifically from the Ogallala aquifer so you're locked yeah. in tens of millions so you're totally right like the EPA says 13 million plus wow they're not sure and that's, Ooh, that's the exact nice. I have to admit that's like less than I was going for but I'm glad that tens of millions covers that <laughs> yeah so you're right in there and yep order of yeah. magnitude woo Nice. So question number two, I was gonna I was gonna give you like a softball trivia question, and then I figured because Jessica's here, um, I could really ramp it up. So, Uh-oh. so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a mini question on the way to the real question. Okay. Wait, me specifically or the whole or group, us? It's collaborative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. we're all together gonna answer this hardcore <laughs> geology question. <laughs> so equal contributions here. Question number totally. two. Kurt Vonnegut describes a theoretically deadly solid water called Ice Nine in his novel. Um, it's not Cat's Cradle, is yeah, it? Yeah, it is Cat's Cradle. It is. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. So he descri- <laughs> I was like, I don't remember Ice Nine in Slaughterhouse Five, but I mean, maybe I got my numbers wasn't it, confused. Wasn't it like a weather control thing? <laughs> uh, I think it was like sort of like weather-driven warfare, like basically like 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 cloud yeah, seeding. Yeah. 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 Um, and it was as a form of warfare. essentially like yeah. DuPont chemical or the equivalent in the book made this like different water structure. Uh-huh. Um, but so that that's your that's your good job trivia question. Now we're going to ramp it up um, geotechnical water scientist style. Um, how many different structures of ice crystals have been actually formed in labs and might exist naturally throughout space? Seventeen. Uh, Okay, I, I have a series of hints that I was going to give you guys. <laughs> and if you don't want to go with 17, I can still give you the hints. Right, go, go ahead and give us the hints. Okay. Yeah. So the first one is the most games won by any football team in a single season and postseason. I remember, so let me just say, of course, I, well, you can give us more hints in a second, but I want to say that mm-hmm. uh, when when we had Jessica like help us like with some science content for this podcast she directed me towards the 17 kinds of ice then there were like wikipedia pages about it but there may be something in the question you like how many have been created in labs or like or thought to exist or something that might be so let's hear some more hints okay the second hint Mm, is it is the number of shakespeare's um sonnet in which he says shall i compare thee to a summer's day I feel like that was like 19 is emerging in my mind for some reason for that. Ooh, maybe it is 19. Oh, um, that's embarrassing for me. Could be totally wrong. Okay. But... Hint number three, and this one's kind of just straight up for Noah. The age Mary Shelley was when she wrote Frankenstein. Oh, 18. 18. Okay. <laughs> so is it 18? Oh. I mean, we have 17, okay. 18, 19. Okay. It's not like we're not close. Yes. On, so on j- tight yeah. just... ice, Rob. We're... <laughs> Just, just had her finger on the pulse right away. It's not one like many of our listeners may have thought. Um, so it is in fact eighteen, and and I'm gonna. I bet I there's one exp- that's like, oh, it could be technically A or B or something. So ice eighteen was first described in June of last year. Oh, so it, is, it is a that's new actually and, new. That's wow. new since yeah. we talked oh. about it. Yeah, so if you were like, if you knew all your ice stuff as of June 2017, or 2019, 
This is new ice. Wow. This this is some hot hot this new is ice. New ice. Um. Wow. <laughs> you know what? I I will I will take the L on that new ice. I am not. No, we got angry it. We got eighteen. We rise and fall together, Mary I, Shelley. That's <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. And <laughs> just for the just for the everyone else, um, the two thousand seven New England Patriots won all sixteen regular season games, and then they won their two postseason games to get into the Super Bowl. Um, so they won 18 games where they lost to the New York Giants on an amazing catch by Plaxico Burris as time expired. Um, Did he, so, didn't Plaxico Burris <laughs> shoot himself in the leg at a different occasion? You know, there are highs and lows in everyone's <laughs> career. We're, gonna, we're just going to let that one slide. Um, on ice. <laughs> I remember yeah, that game. It was a fantastic game. Then, yep. yeah, sonnet number 18, and Mary Shelley was 18 years old. And as Shall for I compare 9, thee to a winter's day? Thou art more icy and... 18 kinds of you. <laughs> nice. Very different pro- different poem. That relationship yeah. soured by the winter time. Question number three. Uh, this one, I, I figured Noah would talk a little bit about this. Uh, but question three. Deuterium is the form of hydrogen with a neutron in the nucleus, uh, dramatically increasing its molecular weight. Um, because of this, hydrogen is actually the atom whose uh, isotopes have the greatest variability in weight in terms of like total percentage weight. A glass of water made of pure deuterium uh, or deuterium oxide is 11% heavier mm. than just hydrogen oxide water. That makes uh, sense. So in normal water, one in 41 million water molecules is D2O. How many molecules of semi-heavy water, which is one hydrogen and then one deuterium attached to an oxygen, are there per million water molecules? order of magnitude or what like what do you want <laughs> yeah yeah order of magnitude yeah. so i'm looking like over one million so the number of water molecules with one deuterium and one hydrogen on the oxygen mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. so yep. per million i don't know why my oh because then this is a probability mm-hmm. question that's awesome um so the <laughs> every 41 million you'd expect to have one of these heavy uh, these heavy water molecules, or these heavy hydrogens. So, if you only have a million, then you only have a 1 in 41 chance of finding one of these heavy hydrogens. So I'm going to go and be bold and say zero. Ooh. Zero is, is my answer. <laughs> so that, that, is a, that is a really good uh, answer for deuterium. Um, but for semi-heavy water... So is the so basically like how so the question kind of has okay. to do with like where do we get heavy water from naturally like is it are like neutrons whatever sort of bouncing around getting added to hydrogens and then there's basically like sort of the the probability you would have a full deuterium it's sort of in basically are the hydrogens getting added to like independently so so it really sh- should it be like the square root of one forty one million forty yeah right yeah basically. Because it has to be the okay. independent likelihood of like one hydrogen getting an extra neutron and then the other one on that getting an extra neutron. So is that so? I'm not. I'm not going to do the square root. Okay. <laughs> it's that's so, it though, right? But yes, you've you've unlocked the formula. So essentially, oh, cool. one okay. one in thirty two hundred, or about three hundred per million. Interesting. Uh, molecules will be semi heavy water. And that's like a lot more than you think. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, question number four. 80% of what 2016 movie contained effects, basically special effects editing, and dynamic dynamic animation 
making it one of the most CGI movies ever made. Was there like an ocean movie that came out? It's like Deep Blue or something. Finding Nemo. Finding Dory. Imagining things. (laughs) Blue Ocean. So 2016... Um, you're you're totally right that the reason that there was a physics solver in 80% of the scenes was oh. because of water. Like, so water in this movie took on various shapes mm-hmm. and interactions with the characters of the movie. Strong female lead with her own theme song. Moana. Yeah. Oh, nice. It's, it's Moana. <laughs> oh, cool. Moana. Oh, oh I see. Gosh. The water yeah. does stuff. Okay. Oh, yeah. I can't believe that took me so long. I, I have to retire my okay. Disney badge okay. now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Yeah, and so Moana is set in Polynesia, and the water is almost in every sh- every single shot. The ocean itself is a character. Uh, it like high fives people and has expressions yeah. and movements. And whenever the ship moves through the ocean, um, basically they had the background, which was again it was moving, but it was kind of set. And whatever happened in the foreground, the computers meshed together, so they created an interface mm. that had to look natural. Um, and in, in scenes where a storm was occurring, they had a physics solver determine the speed, mass, and, and trajectory of a ship and what would happen to the water. And there were literally scenes where billions of individual water molecules were generated and moved through the physics solver so that they would fall like real water. Wow. Oh, um, wow. Which is That's a wild. reason people are kind of funnily pointing out that um, Moana had a high carbon footprint for all the server time it used, <laughs> despite being at heart like a very enmir- environmentally like green movie. Um, so there's a kind of funny like uh, you you wasted so much carbon yeah. doing this. <laughs> Question number five: Gary White and what celebrity founded the Water Project, which aims to bring clean drinking water to afflicted people around the world? Uh, was it? Is it like Matt Damon? It is Matt, oh, Matt Damon. Damon. Oh, that's okay. Right. Okay. Yep. Oh. okay. 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 So Matt Damon was a co-founder with Gary White, um, and it's actually a New York City-based nonprofit that works to distribute water and create sustainable water, um, basically water collecting practices. Okay. Question number six. Uh, this one's out there, and we're gonna we're gonna go for it. All right. Um, <laughs> alternatively described as alt pop, avant pop, and electro pop, what artist? whose name is one letter shy of that of a famous um, visual artist and whose first and middle name are Jillian Rose, released her third album last year, including If We Were Made of Water. It's only, it's one, only one letter away from a famous visual artist, so it's yes. not Lady Dega? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was uh, I was thinking of that okay, joke the whole who's time. Popular, like all geologists, I'm just into rock. So. <laughs> <laughs> Banksy, Azalea, Azalea Banks. Banksy. Yes. So it's it's weirdly not Azalea Banks. It's an artist who just goes by Banks. <laughs> what Banks? Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so the whole and... name only differs by one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so Jillian Rose Banks. All oh, right, Jillian Rose Banks. Yeah. Oh, I don't know that. Yeah, okay. I no idea who that I, is. I think it's safe to say that she's not that famous, but she's got way more Spotify listens than we do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Oops. Okay. Fine. Uh, question number seven. According to the book *Prisoners of Geography*, what continent has the most miles of navigable rivers? Well, certainly the Amazon River has like a billion tributaries. Certainly, like then you've got like the Mississippi going from 
the Great Lakes all the way down. Yeah, navigable is throwing me off. Yeah, that that part I can't. Yeah, speak to. I think that's Missis- yeah. Mississippi's not the it's biggest. Not no, I know. I'm just saying. But then you have the Colorado. But I'm thinking too. of like mm. places that have like loads and loads of like solid sized rivers flowing into them and the mississippi certainly is one of those as well like a lot of cities especially you know in the midwest are like on rivers that then become the mississippi i mean asia has a lot of rivers too because yeah. it's i mean it's just got a bunch of yeah. land mass and it just collects a lot oh yeah of rivers. so we're also thinking of con- just the continent that has so it's not even so mm-hmm. there's very large larger continents that have the same density of say navigable rivers might would have larger total Good point. Yeah. Do we want to say Asia? I think then? that's a pretty good reasoning. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Locked so in. guess is Asia. Um, believe it or not, it is North America. Dang. And okay. no kidding. So much Mississippi or. Yeah, and so the, uh, to put this in perspective, so a lot of the the reason that a lot of other rivers are not navigable is because of waterfalls and because mountain ranges around the world really get in the way of most large river systems. Um, the Mississippi River system, including all the tributaries, and honestly, if you take the tributaries, their distance totals more than the body of the Mississippi itself. Um, if you take that entire river system, it alone is more than any other continent's navigable river distance. And then you can add every other river in the wow. United States on top of wow. it. Wow. Um, Dang. That is so yes. cool. And then we That's didn't nuts. pump the brakes. All right, question number eight is the last question. And for this one, I wanted to do something about waterfalls. I was chasing waterfalls the whole quiz. Shouldn't do that, Ron. Um, I, I heard that it's bad, but <laughs> I don't really trust it. Uh, um, but so I have three waterfall facts. One of them is false. You have to tell me which of these waterfall facts is not true. So um, number one. Angel Falls in Venezuela is named after a maiden girl who fell off the edge and miraculously lived, some say carried by angels to the lower shore. Two, because of the volume of water and the lack of light pollution, um, because of the volume of water going over the edge, you can see moon bows during full moons over Victoria Falls. Or, in 1969, the state of New York closed the American Niagara Falls for cleaning. Okay, that last one is true. Here's the thing. I think we have to think about this analytically. Rob had to write this question. Did he, A, find three facts, one of which has been, like, debunked, or, like, on the internet, say, or did he find two true facts and have to invent one about a famous waterfall? And so I think it's... Mm-hmm. It could be the first, but I think we should at least consider that it may be the second and think which one is he most likely to have invented. I think the the simplest one, which is not an insult to Rob, although, come on, um, is the <laughs> Angels one. I think that like that would be the easiest to like make up. What do y'all think? Well, I think moonbeams are, a re- or moon, moon bows. I think moon bows are a real thing. And it makes sense that the tallest waterfall might enable a moon bow so from my physics perspective yes that makes sense that it could happen and the other one maybe it's just a a folklore legend that's probably not true so um you know how the the early spanish conquistadors like to embellish their stories <laughs> sure, i so. sure do can't trust them Okay. Yep. Well, I'll spend uh, just yep. a second on the buried lead on the fact that the United States closed Niagara Falls uh, for cleaning at one point. Um, and then 
second, I'd like to say a beautiful dissection of the art of making trivia. <laughs> uh, because I this, did... ain't my, this ain't my first rodeo, Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, in fact, find uh, that because of the, the, the mass of water that's going over Victoria Falls, the highest volume of any waterfall in the world, um, that creates moon bows. Yes! On the regular. Oh, we did it! <laughs> Good job, everyone. <laughs> and that's our quiz. That was awesome. Thank you so yeah. much. Cool. Great job, Rob. So let me wrap up by saying to everyone, thank you for listening. And Jess, thank you so much for coming. It was absolutely wonderful to have you as a guest on this remote episode. It was so much fun being here. Thank you all for having me. So for everyone else, thanks for listening. You can check out our website, FaxMachinePodcast.com, our Instagram and Twitter at FaxMachinePod, and Facebook at FaxMachinePodcast. Uh, and if you'd like to follow us on social media, I'm SweaterVestSCI, Noah. At Arcs and Sciences. At underscore E.M. Costa. And Jess. I am at Jessica Noviello. Or you could oh. follow me on Instagram on my at Road Trip Dinosaur Instagram account. How did Thank we you. not talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Next time, Noah. Next, next time, time. Next time. There we Always go. Gotta, gotta save leave something. More. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyverson, Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyverson. Theme music is produced by Anthony Antonelli, and our logo is designed by Mike Zola. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.